Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We are talking today about where media and politics collide. Of course, in America, they always have, most famously in the person of Donald Trump, the reality TV star turned presidential candidate and indeed president. But it's that talk and that possibility is in the air again, thanks to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. He's a phenomenon on cable news. Sometimes his show, Primetime on Fox News, is the top-rated cable news show, bar none. He has developed a huge following among conservative TV viewers and the Fox News base. And as a result, there is now talk of whether he might, like Donald Trump before him, parlay that huge media success and media following into a political candidacy, perhaps for the Republican nomination for the presidency in 2024. Who better to talk about that than somebody who knows communications and somebody who knows the Republican universe? And that person is Tara Setmeyer. She is a senior advisor with the Lincoln Project, that dissenting group of Republicans. She herself has made a break away from the Republican Party. Previously to that, she was a former Congressional Communications Director on Capitol Hill. She knows communications in the media. She knows politics. So my first question to Tara Setmeyer was, does she know Tucker Carlson? So um, given the fact that I've spent over 20 years in Washington, D.C., I went to college here. Uh, I've worked on many campaigns. I've worked in Capitol Hill. Um, the D.C. social circles for Republicans are um, pretty small. Everyone knows everyone else, particularly when you're in the media space. So um, I have had social interactions with Tucker Carlson, um, but I have never been on any of his programs or had any direct debates with him on air, which I think today would probably be quite interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And is there a gap between the public person or persona we see on TV and the person you, albeit fleetingly, interacted with, you know, in the flesh? Not really. And I have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues who have had more interaction with Tucker Carlson, both professionally and personally. And uh, they've all told me that he is um, just minimally less obnoxious in person. <laughs> <laughs> that could be his. That could be his new brand slogan: minimally less obnoxious. <laughs> right. 
I like it. So let's just talk a little bit, go back a bit. I mean, when I was in DC myself uh, a long time ago, I'm a, I'm a similar age to Tucker Carlson. He was making his start as this very young kind of preppy boyish guy with the bow tie who was on some of the, in the conservative chair on lots of talk shows. We're all Americans here and American interests are, are paramount, at least to Americans. Um, but I think it's America first in capitals, the America first movement of the 30s and 40s that Buchanan's comments remind a lot of people of, and that's what people find creepy. Go back a bit and give us the history of who he was before he became the front man of what is, you know, by some measures, the most watched show on cable TV. You know, it's pretty remarkable because Tucker Carlson was, um, wasn't was someone that the Republicans, uh, particularly the Republican intelligentsia or the base, took seriously. Um, he was just another one of those country club elitist Republicans that had a gimmick with the bow tie, was provocative at times, but no one really saw Tucker Carlson as a power player early on. You know, he went to prep school in the Northeast, boarding school. He married his high school sweetheart. He had some difficulty getting into prestigious colleges. Uh, he went to, ended up going to Trinity with some help from her. That's partly because she was the head teacher's daughter. Correct. <laughs> he, she was the headmaster's daughter, so um, that carried some weight for him. He didn't initially go into political journalism. Um, journalism was something that his father actually had done, but he was trying to get into the CIA and was rejected. So um, after having several children, you know, Tucker has said in interviews that it was a financial necessity that he find work in an industry where he could make a little more money. So he ventured into political television. And it said that his father said to him, oh, you should try journalism. They take anybody. Yes. <laughs> right. So I wouldn't exactly say that that's a, a vote of confidence from your dad. If that's what he's telling you, um, I, I would suspect that to a lot of Tucker's um, public angst and what he says on television and that internal anger uh, probably comes from being rejected by his father and others. And his mother left when he was six. They got divorced. His parents were divorced and she ventured over to France and he didn't really have much interaction with his with his mom. But I digress. Um, after he was rejected from the CIA, decided to go into journalism, he, he dipped his toe in, in uh, getting on television with CNN. And when I was in college, uh, Crossfire was in the 90s, one of the most watched television, political television shows. I would say bad night uh, for Democrats. Uh, James Carville feels the same way. Well, I'm not saying that I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, uh... Crossfire was a debate show where you had a Republican host, Democratic host, and then guests, and they would argue. I mean, it really did, it, it sort of just to chip in there, it just, it really kind of, institutionalized the binary nature, the 50-50 division, polarized division of American politics, because it was from the left, I'm so-and-so, from the right, I'm so-and-so, and they would just agree about nothing. And it was it was entertainment, but through combat. Absolutely. You know, for Tucker, his, his pathway into political journalism um, was interesting because he, you know, after he, he had a rather contentious back and forth with Jon Stewart, the rather popular late night host, former now late night host. And, um, you know, and, and Jon Stewart questioned the efficacy of that type of debate combat style program in politics and whether it actually served the viewers well. So I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say, wait, wait, no, I just, let me, here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. 
Stop hurting America. Okay, now, and, and, come work and Tucker didn't handle that so well. And then his time at MS, uh, his time at CNN ended shortly thereafter. And he ended up over at MSNBC, coincidentally. Which is a network usually associated or associated now anyway with liberals and the left. Correct. I mean, it was always associated with that. It was MSNBC was founded around the same time Fox News was back in 1996, 95, 96, um, as a, the counter to Fox. So um, they've always been left of center. And so, you know, he was a bit of the Republican conservative standout voice over at MSNBC. And that's where the bow tie became his, uh, you know, more public signature. He he'd started wearing it earlier, but that gave him you know, the national recognition of that's the bow tie guy. Then when he left MSNBC, well, he was fired. I shouldn't say left because it wasn't on his own accord. Um, when they didn't renew his program, he decided to uh, ditch the bow tie look. And um, he started The Daily Caller, uh, an online right wing, uh, quote, news site, depending on how you define news. Um, and there were some controversial folks associated with that that came from a very problematic alt-right perspective. Some would say racist, some would say white supremacist. And uh, he had to clean that up a little bit. But he used the Daily Caller really to get himself back into the good graces and get noticed on the right. Yeah, so it's a career that's taken him from CNN through to MSNBC and finally really finding his place on uh, Fox News, where he now has the primetime slot on Fox News and got himself uh, a huge audience and sometimes tops the cable news ratings. What is it accounts, though? The reason we're talking about him now is that he's not just a media star, but a, a political player and has influence voicing a particular strand of you want one wants to say sort of Trumpian opinion within the conservative movement. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided. Just tell us about that. What are the positions he staked out? Why has he managed to get that niche for himself? The interesting thing about Tucker Carlson is it it really took Megyn Kelly leaving Fox um, after the 2016 election um, and opening up that time slot for Hannity to move into nine and Tucker to move into that eight o'clock slot. They moved things around um, for him to begin this ascent. And he wasn't this rapidly pro-Trump necessarily in the beginning, but he recognized that this was the, the quickest way to get attention, fame, and to have tremendous influence over uh, the way people behave and view the news and view politics. And unfortunately for a lot of people in this business, uh, that's very intoxicating. He's got this kind of trademark style of going on a real, he would say, a kind of speech or like a TV equivalent of an editorial column. Other, his critics call them a rant, but he sort of goes off on one. And, you know, he's done one recently about masks. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact child protection. Or he'll talk about, you know, the phrase white nationalism, white supremacy, claiming he doesn't understand what it means. It's actually not a real problem in America. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax, just like the Russia hoax. It's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country. When he does this, from what you're saying, it sounds like you believe it is a kind of persona. It is a performance. 
and a shtick even, which he knows gets an audience, rather than being conviction. If that is your view, what, why, why is that your, 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 your take on him? I actually think it's a combination of both. Um, I think that you know he's always harbored some of these viewpoints. Um, if you go back to his days in college, um, it was recently unearthed that in his college yearbook, he, he put that he was a member of the Dan White Society. Um, Dan White assassinated Harvey Milk, the gay, gay rights activist and, and progressive activist uh, in San Francisco. So Tucker Carlson has always had some, some um, sympathies, I guess, for these folks. And it was not as mainstreamed as it is now, unfortunately, because of the rise of, of Donald Trump and him mainstreaming a lot of this. And so I think that there is a certain amount of elitist notion about this whole white replacement theory. The Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's another rather um, disgusting view about white people being you know, fearful of being replaced by others. And that creates that very us versus them, otherism, tribal attitude toward people who don't look like them. And this is something else that he now has made into a cottage industry that he's woven into his his public persona into his show. And it's really quite dangerous. Yeah, let's talk about that danger and and the and whether you and I, in our own inadvertent way now, are adding to that danger. There was a piece in the New York Times quite recently that said we the media, left and right, is actually failing to learn the lesson of, and I'm really glad you mentioned Donald Trump, failing to learn the lesson of the Donald Trump campaign of 2015, 2016, when even when it was appalled by things that Donald Trump has said, would amplify them by repeating the the relevant clip over and over again on the news, showing it and then discussing it and giving it more and more airtime. And you think about something that, you know, Tucker Carlson might have said recently talk or not that recently, but talking about immigrants making America, you know, a dirtier Mm. country, a dirtier place. That was amplified so that a whole lot of people who don't watch Fox News got to hear it. Uh, Are we now, you and I even, you know, in effect adding him to the Tucker Carlson phenomenon, making him more fat powerful simply by the fact of talking about it? You know, I think that that's an interesting point because there, where is the balance? Where's the balance between informing and inflaming? And I think that uh, that New York Times piece was correct in that there was a lot more responsibility on the part of the of media and political journalism in 2015 and 16 that led to the rise of Donald Trump and his eventual victory than they initially wanted to admit. But it was great ratings and they made a lot of money before they realized that, oh, my goodness, this guy could actually win. It was too late. But, you know, when we start talking about it, though, we have to point it out. We have to call them out. We have to call out people like uh, Tucker Carlson for the misinformation, for the uh, obnoxious uh, propaganda that he puts forth. Because if we don't, that's the other side. If we don't, then how do we ever hold them accountable? So I think that you know, trying to find that happy medium between uh, informing and enabling is the challenge. A Fox News host is in a harsh spotlight tonight. Tucker Carlson has taken criticism for his recent comments on immigration. Some advertisers are leaving. I mean, the other question, though, of of course, with this one is it is partly a media story. And there have been protests against Fox 
for broadcasting Tucker Carlson and advertisers have fled in in their in their numbers away from putting their uh, commercials on Tucker Carlson's airtime and yet it doesn't seem to make any difference Tara because he's still there and the ratings are still high this is true and what's some what's interesting about that is a lot of people don't realize you think that um that broadcast cable makes most of their money from advertising but they actually don't a lot of it is from the carriage fees so the as long as cable companies continue to take in the revenue from the carriage fees that will keep Tucker Carlson on air and because there are more options for people to choose how they watch their their uh, television programming allow you to be more a la carte with what you watch um, I think we're going to start to see more impact through the consumer base making choices that they do not want channels like Fox News or Newsmax or OANN and some of these other um, rather out there right wing media sources. And then that could start to hit the, bo- the, the pockets of these of these companies and maybe they'll make a change. So look, it's a media story, but it's also a politics story. And maybe before five years ago, we would never have thought of this. But now it's the first thought people have when they talk about Tucker Carlson. And that is, does this end with Fox News? Or does he launch a political career? And as I say, it's Donald Trump that makes people think this is possible, that you can run for president, even having never served or even run for elected office before. You hear it, you hear talk of it, Tucker Carlson 2024. You know the Republican world, you know the Republican family and the Republican universe. Do you see that as being a really serious prospect? Well, yes and no. Um, I would caution anyone who dismisses people who have no experience, who come from a television or reality TV background. Those of us who did were terribly wrong about Donald Trump. Same thing with Tucker Carlson. Um, now, he has very limited appeal. He appeals to only a certain group of, of voters, and I don't know that there are enough of them to elect him to anything. But the idea that that, that his name would be in the same sentence as the office of the presidency, I think is just an indication of how far our politics have fallen. You look at some of the elected members of Congress currently, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boeberts, people who are completely out of the mainstream, who are just interested in performative politics and engage in out there crazy conspiracy theories, dangerous conspiracy theories, actually elected to the Congress of the United States. People like that and someone like as as vile as Tucker Carlson is and has who has trafficked in this type of vitriol could even be considered someone on the 2024 ticket. Now, do I think he would actually do it? No, I don't think he would unless he lost his show um, and it was a way to stay relevant. You make the point that, look, he wouldn't have national appeal. And, and and let's say we agree on that. In a way, though, that's not the point, is it? You have to have repeal within that Republican primary voting base. And among them, given his anti-immigration rhetoric, given his defense of Donald Trump, given the kind of dog whistling on race, I, I, I can't help but feel he would be quite formidable in a Republican primary. Tell, tell me why I've got that wrong. No, I, I think that you have that right uh, because he actually knows how to play to a crowd, right? Could you imagine? And, and specifically that crowd. That's right. He knows he speaks their language and he does it in a way that is less rigid than, let's say, a Ted Cruz or um, even a Josh Hawley, other potential 2024 
candidates. So yeah, it's no longer about, for the Republicans, it's no longer about policy or ideology or, you know, um, defending the Constitution. And those things that used to be tenants of the Republican Party are out the window now. None of that matters. It's all about performative politics. And I think that that is terribly dangerous for for, for the health of our democracy. It is poison. When we talk about Tucker Carlson in 2024, the premise of that question, in a way, is this assumption that Donald Trump himself would not run, and he may well. But let's say he didn't. Do you think he, Donald Trump, would uh, get behind Tucker Carlson? And I partly in my mind is the fact that he was, you know, close to Carlson. Even as president, he made him a kind of unofficial foreign policy advisor. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we are live from Paju, South Korea. Just behind us, and you can probably see it, is the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. That's the barrier that separates this country, South Korea, from the dictatorship right across the border run by Kim Jong-un. Incredibly, Tucker Carlson accompanied Trump on that famous trip. And we were privileged to, quite unexpectedly, become witness to history. The president held what turned out to be a momentous meeting, impromptu, with Kim Jong-un. Made him a kind of part of the inner circle kitchen cabinet. Can you see Donald Trump endorsing Tucker Carlson in 2024? Listen, I think that the, the key point that you brought up is this is all speculation only if Donald Trump does not run. The 2024 hopes for a lot of those other people, some that I named, Cruz and Hawley and, you know, Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, some of those some of those others um, who are eyeing 2024, hoping that Donald Trump goes away and doesn't run again. Because if he did, he would get the nomination again, which is um, just really mind-blowing. But Donald Trump likes the idea of being the kingmaker. He likes the idea of holding the party hostage and and blocking the others from being able to start their campaigns early. I think that he's going to string them along as long as possible, given whether whether he's um, you know, his health indoors, um, he's not broke or in jail. He will pull this all the way until the, you know, as close as possible to try to block others so, you know, he can have that power. And would he endorse a Tucker? I think he would. This you know, Donald Trump's mind four years from now or three years from now is, you know, tough to predict. We don't know what he's going to do the next day. But depending on how much Tucker continues to kiss the ring and push Trump's agenda, then I, yeah, I could completely see him endorsing Tucker over the more traditional politicians like a Cruz or a Hawley. Yeah, I think you've said absolutely the crucial thing there, which is dependent on how much Tucker Carlson is willing to grovel to Donald Trump and and go on uh, one or maybe even two knees to, as you say, kiss that ring. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, let, we always, Tara, ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. And our what else question this week is indeed about Donald Trump, who has returned in a way to social media with what is what The Guardian itself has called a glorified blog. Uh, but his big hope, obviously, would have been to uh, have been reinstated on the big social media platforms, including Facebook. Uh, but the that uh, Facebook's oversight board voted uh, on Wednesday not to allow Donald Trump back. Uh, and Facebook executive Nick Clegg, formerly deputy prime minister in this country, said the company will take this into account when deciding whether or not to overturn Donald Trump's indefinite suspension from the platform. I mean, how disappointed do you think Donald Trump will be to be confined to this glorified blog and not back on uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on? 
So I was pleased to see that Facebook did not allow him to come back on because part of the problem when we were talking about amplifying versus enabling um, is the role of the social media platforms, the Facebooks, the Twitters. And I also recognize the the free speech and slippery slope arguments on the other side of censorship and things like that and deplatforming. And so I understand it's a very complicated issue, but we may only have that reprieve for another six months. I, it's my understanding that in six months they will revisit whether to permanently keep him suspended or not, and we may be having a different conversation then. But it's frustrating for him because because Twitter and Facebook were his superpower. The idea that he would start his own social media platform, there was some talk of that earlier this year when he was deplatformed. I'll just go start my own, you know, Trump TV or, you know, some kind of social media thing. That takes a lot of work. And Donald Trump, as we all know, does not like hard work. So it was too it was too tough. So this glorified blog is just his way of blowing off steam. And he sends out these ridiculously absurd statements from <laughs> the office of the former president, which is, you know, they're pretty laughable. And um, I don't know how long he'll be satisfied with that as the platform. I suspect we will see a ramping up of um, more of his uh, colorful statements because he, he just desires that level of attention. And if he doesn't get it, he'll do things until he does. That sounds like a smart prediction. Tara, Setmayer, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that is all from me for this week. Now, funnily enough, neither Donald Trump nor Tucker Carlson sent us birthday wishes, but many others did because this week, The Guardian marked exactly 200 years since our first four-page weekly newspaper appeared, published in Manchester, in 1821. Throughout May, there's going to be lots of unmissable journalism for you to enjoy. For example, there's a piece by friend of the podcast, David Smith, diving deeply into reporting from America for The Guardian. And you can find a link to that piece on today's episode description. And of course, there are special 200th anniversary podcast for you to listen to, whether it's Science Weekly with a special edition looking back at Guardian coverage of the so-called Spanish flu pandemic from just over a century ago, or Wednesday's edition of the Audio Long Read, where you can hear the centenary essay from 1921 written by the then Guardian editor and all-round Guardian legend C.P. Scott. So do head over to the Guardian website or pick up one of our print newspapers to see how, despite turning 200 years old, we're only just getting started. But for now, it is goodbye from me. The producer, as always, is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.